The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Trust you enjoyed your lunch and that you're able to uh, stay awake for the after lunch session. Usually is the graveyard slot, but I think the subject matter may keep some of us more awake than we might otherwise have been. Uh, the, the, for my first session, we talked about the kingdoms of the culture and painted in broad brushstrokes the picture of these two kingdoms with two ends, two goals, two, two objectives, one arising out of the ideas of man, the other from the word of God. And then we talked in our second session, uh, which was this morning, the propaganda of the kingdoms about the role of media and how the context-free, uh, instant, fast, visual culture in which we live is often not helping us uh, to accurately interpret and process uh, complex information, and that uh, there is a priority in the Christian worldview over against the pagan worldview of the word, because the image can be uh, deceptive. Uh, Now, something that really ties quite well and perhaps illustrates this most powerfully is the question of the sexuality of the kingdoms, the sexuality of the Christian worldview and of the pagan or non-Christian worldview. I'm going to read from Paul's first letter to Timothy, verse 5 to 11. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have deviated from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching based on the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was entrusted to me. Notice there that what Paul says is that this is based on the gospel, not something else, not something external to the gospel, but the message of God's holiness and righteousness as it pertains to sexuality is an aspect of the gospel. Now, When we today are trying to navigate through the question of human sexuality, it's a bit like being on a minesweeper during the Second World War. It's extremely hazardous. It's difficult. The boundaries around human sexual identity and activity have become blurred because of the departure from a biblical view of human sexuality. And once you depart from a basic norm, the question always becomes... What is the logical stopping point? The God-given plan for sexuality is under attack by humanism today, and it comes to us on several fronts, and it manifests itself in the culture, especially in our visual media culture. And that word, culture, is one that carries many implications and nuances, but I think the most effective and simple definition of culture is religion externalized. Religion externalized or applied 
beliefs. If you go to Saudi Arabia or to Pakistan, where my family lived, my parents lived for 17 years, you will experience Islamic culture. That's because in the laws, the literature, the food, the dress, everything, it's Islamic. It comes out of an Islamic perspective upon the world. Come to the West today, and what do you experience? Well, you're living essentially now in a humanistic, increasingly pagan culture, which has vestiges of the Christian faith in our laws, languages, and architecture. You see all those churches, it's just that not many people are going to them. The assault on the Christian sexual worldview is taking place in the most fundamental cultural institutions of education, law, and media. And it is starting to make for social chaos. For example, you may have read about a man recently, a 46-year-old man in Toronto, who is now identifying as a six-year-old girl and is living as such. He's been adopted or being taken in by a family so that a 46-year-old man with children can live as a six-year-old girl. Now, that, if that doesn't strike you as confusing, then nothing will. There is a problem there. A cultural line, then, uh, is becoming sharply drawn so that where it used to be the case for our parents, even in the 60s and 70s, that uh, you could be a Christian still fairly safely within the social order, and there were radical elements who were radical sexual libertines, but for the most part, most people still wanted to live in terms of an essentially Judeo-Christian ethic. That's no longer the case. There isn't this so-called neutral Space That has shrunk down to nothing, and that means that Christians are on the receiving end today of the extreme ire of humanistic culture. Even to read passages like the passage I just read would suck the air out of a room for most people. Why all this emphasis, some would ask, on sexual sins? Why are Christians so obsessed with sex? Get out of my bedroom is what uh, people say. And that charge, when people hear that, when Christians hear that, it kind of stings. It feels uh, difficult. And many Christians at that point will say, well, yes, let's, um, let's not talk about sex and sexuality and those issues. You know, the world has its way of doing things. Let's just talk about the gospel. Let's just talk about a gospel emphasis. There's no need to be political. As though the Apostle Paul was being political in 1 Timothy 1 or Romans 1. Of course, there are always political implications to moral standards. It's inescapable. The polis, the city-state, the political sphere is only a differentiated public. So if you talk about the intrinsic value of human life in the biblical worldview, well, then you're going to have to say something about the, the issue of abortion and euthanasia. That's biblical. It's theology, and all theology has an impact upon culture. It's just that there's a different theology that governs our culture today. So when we talk about sexuality, we're not saying we're not setting aside the gospel to be political. We're talking about a core aspect of the gospel, one of the implications of the gospel. Let me give you a headline like this. The Bible begins with a marriage of our first parents. It continues with the marriage of God to Israel, where Israel is depicted covenantly as his bride, that God can be both father to Israel and husband to Israel because God is both father, son, and Holy Spirit. 
And actually, the book of Hosea talks about how Hosea had to experience what it felt like to be God, married to Israel, with Israel's continuous adultery. Well, then God sends the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? Christ. And Jesus' ministry begins where? At a wedding in Cana. He comes to us, of course, through the Holy Family, and his ministry begins at a wedding in Cana, and history concludes at a wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That means that the biblical view of human sexuality of marriage says something very important about God, about the cosmos, about the, the reason for human existence. We were made in the beginning for holy communion with God. Marriage is a picture of that. And the reason there's no marriage in heaven is that the desire for holy communion is fully fulfilled in our relationship with Christ in the eschaton, in the kingdom of God. That's the last things. Somebody asked me what the eschaton is. It's the last things. It's the... It's the, the 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 final realization of the kingdom of God. So, when people say, well, let's just focus on the gospel and not talk about this other stuff, they're actually surrendering the gospel even when they don't realize it. The proclamation of the gospel doesn't begin with Jesus and what he said and did. The gospel begins with God's creation, his pattern for creation, and what we have done, who we are and what we have done to spoil it, and then what God is doing to redeem it, which means that the gospel begins actually with the good news of creation, but then some bad news that we have departed from God's pattern. But that the good news is Christ, the bridegroom, has come to restore us to our covenantal union with God. Now, homosexuality is only one sexual sin among many in the Bible, and the activist power and influence in culture today has made it one of the most critical issues of our time. In fact, it's become the forefront of the battle for the preservation of freedom of speech, and the very idea of a normative human identity, a normative sexuality, a normative understanding of gender and of the family. There's a relentless assault on the family in a culture of sexual license and homoerotic propaganda, and it means that increasingly children are growing up with very little understanding of what the family actually is. Now, the best picture of God that the Bible gives to us is not some abstract, uh, not some abstraction. It's actually the family. He reveals himself covenantally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that you have, even as we think about God, we have a familial picture. So if you have a child who grows up with two mummies and doesn't know what the family is, and you tell them about God as their father, how do they interpret the gospel? It's actually been shown in sociological studies now, a book by Mary Eberstadt called How the West Really Lost God, that it is not simply that when people stopped believing in God that Christianity started to, that the the family started to decline. Actually, there is a reciprocal relationship there, which is as family declines, people's belief in Christianity declines. And there's a good reason for that, because Marriage preaches the gospel. It tells you something about God. It tells you something about God's desire for relationship with us. 
We are, uh, we, we are often asked, why are Christians so obsessed with sex today in talking about this issue, if indeed you hear it talked about? Well, this is because the activists have increasingly tried to push their bedrooms into our churches. It's not so much the other way around. This assault on the Bible's prescriptive plan for human sexuality is the outworking of this anti-God worldview. Modern man like Cain in the Bible is acutely aware of his sin and his alienation from God. And like Cain, he then lashes out by attacking, he can't strike at God directly, so he lashes out by attacking his fellow man, his righteous brother, God's representative, Abel. In this situation, Abel typifies God's ordained order for meaning. And he thinks that by destroying this old order, this old vision of society, he is going to put to rest this sense of guilt. He can leave guilt behind him. Guilt is the problem. That was Freud's whole argument, of course. And if, they, if it can be said that there is no ethical standard with human sexuality, it's impossible to be on the wrong side of a standard that doesn't exist, isn't it? You can't be guilty of anything if you're not lawless. If there's no law, the Bible says sin is lawlessness. That's what it is. But if there is no law from God, no normative structure or pattern, you can never be on the wrong side of something that isn't there. Man thinks that by doing that, he will alleviate the problem of guilt. So let's consider for a moment the way our culture is being educated with respect to human sexuality. Many people, including Christians, have accepted the notions of gender identity and sexual orientation uncritically. You should never refer to gay marriage, for example. That's an oxymoron. The people use the language. In fact, uh, in media appearances, I refuse to use the term gay at all. It is a perfectly good word that's been co-opted to mean something else. I had lots of aunts called gay back in England. It used to mean happy. Queer is another word that's been co-opted to mean something else. Gender identity and sexual orientation are words which communicate a whole philosophy of life now. Since biological sex and marriage is a human reflection of God's own person and activity, any alterations of the specifics of sex is actually an assault on who God is and, by extension, the worship of God. You might think that this is alarmist, that I'm already overboard, but... The American Humanist Association understood this matter very well in an article they published back in 1983. This is what it said. The battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their role as proselytizers of a new faith. A religion of humanity that recognizes and respects the spark of divinity in every human being. Do you remember that from our first session? The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new, the rotting corpse of Christianity and the new faith of humanism. Well, that is true. It's true right now in law in this province, as it is in Ontario. 
Today in North America, educators are teaching children in kindergarten that their gender is something they can choose. If they don't feel comfortable in the gender they were assigned at birth. As little as a generation ago, these claims would have been identified by people as complete nonsense, irrational, and absurd. How do we get to the point where people in this Orwellian fashion start repeating this as though it's a description of reality? Well, to sketch out the intellectual process of this transformation takes us into all kinds of fields that are very unfamiliar to most Christian people. Queer theory, as it is often called, is a compilation of continental philosophy, which is essentially the idea that man is a self-interpreting animal. That's the essence of the philosophy of the continent, that is, of European continent. Man is a self-interpreting animal of Marxist suspicion of power, of Freudian and Jungian psychology, of Nietzsche's moral teaching, and of post-structuralist views of language. Okay? You probably don't want a session on all of those. So how can we sort of cut through all of that detail to the essence of it? Well, let's look at one character. His name was Michel Foucault. Who's heard of Michel Foucault? Put your hand up. Just uh, three or four of you. Okay, he is the most cited scholar in the humanities today. He was himself a homosexual, and uh, I won't, wouldn't even want to go in from this pulpit to discussions about how he actually lived and behaved. He engaged in cultural studies in a way that rejected a traditional understanding of history and social analysis. So that rather engaging in this study as a conservative activity of trying to recover the meaning of the past and understand the past as being coherent, he assumes that it can be and was in fact understood at the time that uh, he, he actually, uh, I beg your pardon, he actually viewed history in such a way and the past in such a way that people in the past didn't even understand their situation and that the, uh, the social norms of the past are somehow malignant. They're, they're, they're oppressive. They're evil. And that many of the people engaged in them didn't realize that. The people living in them didn't even understand their own times, according to Foucault. And so he sought to disrupt their self-understanding, and therefore our understanding of ourselves today. In other words... He made social activism the purpose of his scholarship. So the purpose of doing history and sociology was no longer to recover the meaning and order and sense of the past. It was to use it as a tool to change the future. The basic, by questioning the basic comprehensibility of the past, even to those who lived at the time, he charges them with uh, simply preserving a power structure, he says, of an arbitrary worldview as if it were foundational. In other words, as if it were true. So he says that the Christian norms of the past were an arbitrary structure of power relations that was seen as foundational, foundationalist. That is, they were viewed as if they were true, when in fact they were just arbitrary power relations. That's what he means by foundational. 
So he breaks ranks with the idea that the past should shape the present. He doesn't think that the normative family of the past should in any way govern our thinking about the family today. His logic was this. If all reality is simply a social construct, then why should social constructs of the past prevail in the present? In other words, what he was saying was, normative human sexuality, gender, marriage, these structures of the past are not real. They are merely social constructions that have to do with power and how people relate to each other in terms of power relations. It's about domination and power. If they're only socially constructed, why should we have any loyalty to them today, to those ideas? In 1983, Foucault, in an interview, made it clear that he endorsed Friedrich Nietzsche's radical views of self-creation. Now, this is important because I hope this will take your mind straight back to our first session. Man creates himself. Man's idea is going to define, as his own God, what humanity is, what human sexuality is, what human society is. Man is going to create himself. Self-creation. And he criticized existentialists like Jean-Paul Sartre and the New Agers. He says they, they suggested they'd gone awry because they'd introduced this idea of authenticity, i.e. that, while well, all that's important is that you're true to yourself. Foucault criticized that, and he said, in fact, there was nothing within or without to which one had to be true. When you create yourself, you're not to be limited by anything, not even the genitals you were born with. Don't be limited by anything. There is no authentic self. You can change and discard selves like wrappers from sweets, from candy. This construction, he says, of the image, of this idea of man was about aesthetics. It was about image, you see, aesthetics, appearance, not morals. One's only concern should be to fashion a self that was a work of art. So you make yourself as a work of art. And if you're 46 and you want to wander around in a dress... And, and, and tell people you're a seven-year-old girl. That's your artistry. You are creating yourself. Because those who promote Foucault's agenda deny that the world is God's creation, they deny that there is a predestined meaning or foreordained pattern in the universe of any kind. So long as this remained an esoteric view, that is, as long as it was just sort of... Um, flowery shirt-wearing philosophers on the continent talking about this. Who cares? But after this entered the academy and began to dominate the academy, it no longer remained a bizarre idea up here. That was being propagated by a few what would be considered extreme individuals. The, the irrationality and absurdity of it to most people would have rendered these ideas totally unimportant and impotent because they entail that life is meaningless, meaningless and purposeless. Rationality is a vain exercise in such a world where male is female and the world is completely upside down. 
But once it has attained this status of truth in the academy, it, 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 which it did, by the way, through an appeal to victimization, which was Cain's sin in the Bible, of course. Uh, victimization is the idea that all one has to do is to paint your desire, that, to paint yourself as a victim in a society of power relations. It divides up society into the oppressor and the oppressed. And if I can show that I'm one of the oppressed... Well, I can liberate myself and my views for propagation. Now, this had practical consequences, of course. Let's look at the consequences in terms of a comparison. In the Christian worldview, there is an understanding that God is the final judge. So that judgment, final judgment, belongs to God. You don't have to judge everything in history and everybody in history for everything that they do. Because history isn't all there is. God is going to judge and right every wrong. Well, what if you don't have that faith? See, that's one of the foundations of Western freedom was this idea that you limited vengeance to God's law. The lex talionis. An eye for an eye. Exact justice. You limit it to a few outward actions. Because you rested in the fact that God brings everything else into judgment. Now, Albert Camus, an existentialist, he observed that in the anti-Christian universe, he wasn't a Christian, he said this. For the instant that, he says, the collective, collective rights are acknowledged, that is group rights, victim group rights, not only are individual rights destroyed, it requires that the government take on the role of lord and judge. Firstly, in establishing a hierarchy of victim groups, and secondly, secondly in, in, in involving itself in the arbitration of their disputes. So once you move culture to the, to the notion that everything is, a, is, is, a, is power relations, oppressed, oppressor and oppressed, and that the world is filled with victim groups, not individuals who stand before God's law and have certain rights and freedoms under the law, but that there are groups of people who are victimized. Not only are individual rights done away with, that is, well, if I disagree with LGBT issues, I'm a bigot, and I should be silenced and shouldn't be employed or shouldn't be allowed to, to, to be a lawyer or a teacher or whatever. Individual rights are dispensed with. But the government becomes lord and judge of everything, and it has to establish a hierarchy of rights. So, for example, we had feminism in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, there was a, uh, um, an Australian feminist, I think she was recently, who was being lambasted for the fact that she did not accept that Bruce Jenner could be um, woman of the year. This is a radical feminist who was interested in overturning previous understandings of gender role. But when she suggested that Jenner knows nothing about being a woman, and therefore cannot possibly understand what it means to be oppressed as a woman. She was being cancelled for speaking engagements. She was being lambasted in the press. I think she was being denied, if memory serves. Um, She was going to be getting an honorary doctorate or something from somewhere, and this was being... All kinds of things were happening to her. Because in the hierarchy of rights now, what was women's rights and then racial rights... See, what, if it comes now between, if a black woman challenges gay rights, so-called, what's the dilemma? Well, 
How do you arrange the hierarchy of rights? Is it racist to deny the black woman her views? Or is it actually more oppressive to have the... Uh, is, it, um, is, is it actually an act of oppression for the, for the black woman to take that view of homosexuality? How do you arrange the hierarchy of rights in a world of victimization? Many Christians have actually been deceived into thinking, into actually thinking that the agenda of social justice must be a good one because the word justice is a good one. And surely our Christian forebears were interested in justice, especially the proper treatment of women, which, by the way, came with Christianity because the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. And in that culture, a woman's word was worth half that of a man in a court of law. And then Christians were, of course, interested in the treatment of blacks with respect to the slave trade. And so Christians think, oh, yeah, social justice, that's good, isn't it? And then they end up finding themselves thinking they're working with neutral assumptions about justice, which are anything but neutral. God is not morally neutral, neither can his church be. So the social justice movement which has infiltrated the church makes an indiscriminate appeal to equality in broad categories that include race. And by the way, in Christianity, there is no such thing as race. There are people groups. There is only one human race. Races are a Darwinian concept. All man are from one blood, Paul says in Acts 17. There is one human race. There are people groups. Race, gender, sex, spirituality, religion, sexual orientation, ability, national origin, language, socioeconomic status. But those things are not equal. Never mind comparable. Racism and sexual discrimination are abhorrent because they treat people who are image bearers of God as though they're not. So treating somebody of a different ethnicity a subhuman, as the Nazis did, for example, is clearly a violation of God's law. But individual sexual practices cannot be treated as equivalent, let alone comparable to racism and sexual discrimination. The mistake lies precisely in the irrational terminology of gender identity and sexual orientation, because sexual acts should not be deemed synonymous with, here's a big word, ontological states, which simply means this, with this, with your being, with your identity. A sexual act is not to be confused with or be synonymous with my human identity. If, I, if a human being is to have has sex with an animal, which, by the way, is called zoophilia and, is, and was going on so much in Germany recently that they reintroduced bestiality laws there. And it wasn't Christians who reintroduced them. It was animal rights activists. Can you believe that? Now, if somebody does that with their genitals, does that define who they are as a human being? Does that define their identity? Or is it a moral or immoral sexual act? Okay, these things are categorically different. Now, you might think, well, we might think that this, this is new, 
what we're seeing is new. But actually, even this idea of the multiplication of genders, and it depends who you read and who you talk to as to how many genders there actually are now. But we can actually find multiple genders in Native American spirituality, which, where, which is where progressives get their term two-spirited from. That's Native American spiritual ideas. It's paganism. What is different, what is new, is the rate of cultural change because of technology and media. No doubt, without much awareness of these elitist theories and all of the spiritual state, uh, states, um, stakes involved, media are doing a very good job of massaging the sexual fantasy world of the American youth, of North American youth, of Western youth, period. And in fact, the mainstream press are documenting a trend. They say that young people are declaring themselves homosexual at earlier and earlier ages. The young are embracing bisexuality. And observers note, quote, a growing trend to refuse to define their sexuality. Youth today want more representations of a fluid sexuality that rejects even definitions of gay or straight. So that we are having instances now in the West where men... Who are, who are saying they identify as women, are stripping down in women's locker rooms and showers. And there's nothing that can be done about it if they say, well, I feel like a woman. I am a woman. You've got no right to deny my psychological reality. So it's all very well being LGBTQ friendly if you're a woman until you step into your shower at the gym and you find a man in there. Whose chromosomes are different from yours as well as his genitals. I hope this isn't too graphic. I'm just speaking the truth. Sex, then, is a central issue for the gospel, for Christianity, for family, for social order. More central than many are ready to admit. Peter Jones, my friend and colleague in California, Dr. Peter Jones, puts it this way. He says, clearly God is interested in sex. Otherwise, why would Satan be so passionately committed to its deconstruction? So it's not new, but the rate of change is new. Now, there's another aspect to this. So you've got these Foucauldian ideas in sociology. You've got the transfer of these ideas through media. You also have the politicization of these issues, which is why it's difficult for any Christian to stand up in an environment like this and speak about it, because it's as though you're not talking about the Bible, but we are. We're talking about the gospel, according to Paul. I said earlier that culture is applied beliefs of a society. That includes its laws, its political structures. Politics and law are subservient to culture because they express the culture. And in this rage against the kingdom of God that we're seeing from the other kingdom in our time, it's our enemies of the gospel, they understand you don't need to control politics to force cultural change. You don't need to control politics. All you need to do is control the culture. Politics follows. It will follow suit. Christians have often resisted involvement in culture. They've said you can't legislate morality. What they mean by that, of course, is that you can't make people moral by legislation. You do shape their understanding of the world, actually. But the reality of the situation is you can only legislate morality. All law is the legislation of someone's morality. 
somebody's view of the good, the true and the beautiful is legislated. You can only legislate morality. By the the law, you don't make people moral, but you do shape their understanding of the world. Law cannot be neutral any more than education or politics. Now, Karl Marx was disappointed to learn this when the workers of the world failed to unite and seize all the means of production because, broadly speaking, they were inheritors of a Christian culture that taught respect for people's property, the family, and the church. So he wanted political revolution, but he ran up against a problem, the culture. Well, under the influence of people like, that you may or may not have heard of, like Antonio Gramsci and others in the, what is called the Frankfurt School of Philosophy, these radical academics began a movement that today we call cultural Marxism. Cultural Marxism. They noted the failure of Marx's efforts, and Gramsci recognized that what was needed was not, first of all, state coercion to change the Christian order, but a cultural takeover that undermined it, supplanted the Christian values of Scripture with a radically different morality, identifying the oppressed and the oppressor groups in society. And then justice means getting the oppressors and making them the, getting, uh, making them the oppressed. So you turn tables. This especially concerns sexual morality. You know, it's amazing reading the philosophers. It truly is an amazing experience to read Western philosophy because most of their concern is sexual freedom. They can dress it up in whatever intellectual gobbledygook they like, but their objective is almost always, I want to do what I want sexually. This was accomplished not by a violent revolution, but by what Gramsci termed the long, slow march through the institutions, through the schools, through the university, through the corridors of power. That is where it began. The fact that laws have now been brought in to inculcate and enforce these new moralities, the fact that mandatory educational policies have been crafted to transmit them in our society right now, The fact that the academic and government policies have been uh, brought in to professionalize them as well. This is a part of professional culture. Is evidence of Gramsci's march through the institutions as having been largely successful. As goes the culture, so goes the law. So goes politics. Now, what mustn't be missed in that in all of this, is that this sexual liberation is not just a matter of sex. It is a matter of the rediscovery of a different religion. It's a set of different religious assumptions. It isn't just a matter of what people want to do sexually. It's a different set of religious assumptions. Pagan religion promotes a particular view of sex. They are ultimately interconnected. Sexuality and religion have always been, always deeply involved in one another. Radical feminists speak of the need to change our consciousness, which is seen as a spiritual transformation. 
While the modern justification for sexual liberation in the popular forms in our culture has been done in the name of civil rights, its ultimate legitimization proceeds from very ancient ideas in religion. Charles Pixton, a radical Anglican priest, sets the tone in his book, The Divinity of Sex. He says, sex is the spirituality that reveals the sacramental richness of matter. Sound like gobbledygook to you? No, he's a pagan believer. This is what one reviewer said. He forsakes Christianity's transcendent God for a neo-pagan pantheism with the distinction between creator and creation collapsed. And sex the religious experience of choice. So sex becomes and is a religious experience within paganism. It always was. You slept with the temple prostitutes. Fertility cults. In his new look Christianity, beds become altars, altars become beds. It's a religious idea, sexual liberation. It's, actual sec- it's actually sexual slavery, not liberation, but that's what it's called. Pagan theory seeks the justification of sexual license and choice by the elimination of any sense of guilt, and pagan sexual practice by overturning creational norms seeks to demonstrate and embody the truth of pagan spirituality. In other words, sexual perversion expresses a major theological commitment of the pagan worldview. It's not just a superficial footnote. Pagan religion at its deepest level promotes the deconstruction of normative, monogamous, heterosexual relationships and the normalization and idealization of sexual deviancy. That's the very nature of paganism religiously. So it's not a shock that as we've abandoned Christianity in the last 60, 70 years publicly in our country, steadily, that now... We're having a radically altered understanding of sex. This, doesn't, this stuff doesn't just drop out of the heavens into society from nowhere. Moral sexual pluralism and the deconstruction of normative heterosexuality do not simply belong to the present and the future. It was right there in ancient Greece. People say Paul didn't know what he was saying. He didn't understand homosexuality like we do today. He didn't understand sexual practices like we do today. Wrong. Pagan Greece had relativized all forms of sexuality. That was a daily affair. Bisexuality in pagan Greece was normal. They saw it as normal. Such notables as Socrates and Plato considered pederasty, that is the love of young boys by mature men, the highest form of sexuality. When Paul was writing Romans chapter 1... Nero, the emperor, had married two men. The idea that this is something new that Christianity didn't understand is complete nonsense. It's historical rubbish. When a young boy became an adult, he was expected to marry and have children, but he was to maintain pederastic love relationships. That was seen as the ideal. Sexual diversity was achieved in ancient Greece against the backdrop of a social, philosophical demunition of the importance of the family. And in, in um, Greek uh, provinces like Sparta, the state was considered more important than the family. Plato taught that children belong more to the state than to their parents. 
And he believed that the most effective city government or army would be realized if males were involved in pederastic relationships. So the family, actually as an institution, wherever it springs up, inhibits the power of the state. Because it has a certain independence, self-governing. Governs its own children, teaches its own children, resists the absolute power of the state. Not only that, it reinforces heterosexuality and, and it models gender differences and roles. Now, in the last generation of the 20th century, the deconstruction of normative heterosexual marriage and monogamy has just literally taken off at an astonishing pace that my own parents just, they cannot quite, cons- they cannot quite get their heads around it. And my mum was a hippie growing up in the 60s. The family is threatened today. Divorce is everywhere. You know, the Prime Minister of Britain, David Cameron, recently said in an address to the Conservative Party that a child taking their exams today at the age of 15 or 16 is more likely to own own an iPhone than to have a dad. That's where we're at. And this has led to confusion amongst the young especially. No one wants to live, of course, in the ruins of that deconstruction. So you have to have a new paradigm, a new construction that gives so-called liberated sexuality, social acceptance, and spiritual significance. Why do you think that the um, homosexual movement wants marriages performed in the church, wants homosexual bishops and clergy and everything else? Of course, nothing to do with the spirit is really new. So future-oriented social engineers have one eye on the past. And from that past, from all parts of the world, time and again, come this pagan ideal of sexual androgyny. That's the original pagan idea. The androgen, neither male nor female, or bisexual. And that is the essence of homosexuality, of course, because the Homosexuality, by definition, is anti-woman. It's anti-female. And this is something that the feminists don't want to talk about. It's so much so that in Toronto, there has to be a dyke march as well as the pride parade. Because there is an extreme hostility. There is a host- homosexuality expresses hostility to women. It's a rejection of the female. It's misogynistic in its character and nature. Inescapably so. Androgyny is the uh, homosexuality, as Peter Jones has called, the sacrament of monism, the sacrament of oneism. It is the essence of androgyny. The, the male plays the role of both the male and the female. And this has been commonplace throughout the pagan cults of the past. The, one of the greatest experts in the history of comparative religion, uh, Marcia Eliade, he argues that androgyny as a religious universal or archetype appears everywhere at all times. Religions with the myth of a bisexual creator are to be found in ancient Mesopotamia, the Indo-European world, the myths of the Australian Aborigines, the African tribes, South American Indians, and Pacific Islanders. From a bisexual creator then flows the religious ideal of a physico-spiritual androgyny, and it's usually expressed in worship of a goddess, which again makes sense because God covenantally reveals himself as father, and it's going to be against that. 
should come as no surprise then that the revival of pagan religion in our day is accompanied by the reappearance of pagan ideas about sex. In other words, homosexuality is not biological destiny. Its extension and acceptance are not merely part of a democratic urge for civil rights. It has deeply religious overtones. Whether the individual practicing homosexuality is aware of it or not, a particular religious commitment is involved in that particular theory of sexual practice. How's the church reacted to this? Well, I won't comment on this because of my time, but if you go onto the Ezra Institute's website, my latest blog there is called Discerning the... What is it, Stephen? Spiritually discerning, thank you, spiritually discerning the redefinition of marriage. And it's a discussion about what the Anglican Church, the worldwide Anglican Church, is doing right now and how the way the bishops are approaching this and where they've uncritically adopted the language of queer theory and the way the church is surrendering on this issue. It's across the board increasingly. It's not just in the mainline liberal Protestant churches, but it's even coming into the evangelical church. The blessing of same-sex unions actually, biblically, is an act of blasphemy. For sexuality and theology are a dynamic pairing. The first thing that Genesis tells us about the creation of man is that man is made in God's image, God's likeness. Second thing, which is interesting, isn't it, is that the human race is divided into male and female. There aren't 25 different genders. It's male and female. That relationship is not abrogated. The male-female distinction is not abrogated even in the new creation where it still functions as a picture of the eternal covenant bond between Christ and the church. So we have today reference continuously to a socially constructed class of people, the LGBTQ2 S-S-A et al. Which a previous generation would have said they don't exist. Such a group does not exist. That lack of recognition on their part was not hatred. It wasn't mental illness. It was the simple reason, it was for the simple reason that reality is not socially constructed. You cannot define a new type of human being into existence with a few letters from the alphabet. That doesn't remake creation. There is only one type of human being, that is the male and female person made in God's image, made for holy communion with each other and with their maker. The male, female sexes God has created to be in union with one another. And every form of redefinition of human beings by the imagination of man, every other sexual practice outside of God's ordained covenant of marriage, is a falsification and disordering of reality. That's the biblical view. The disagreement in the church today then about this issue, and you do find it, is not actually about human sexuality. The disagreement centers around biblical authority. If you read the Bible and the key passages on human sexuality, you will not emerge, I assure you, confused about what God ordains as proper human sexual conduct. The change in the church is a result of political pressure, beginning with the sexual revolution in particular, not because there's been some great discovery about human psychology. 
We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And if we lose our saltiness and we no longer are a light, then what good are we to anyone? We are called then in the midst of all of this to proclaim the gospel, the good news about God's creation and redemption. We're to have compassion upon all those who are struggling in sin, including sexual deviancy, including wrestling with same-sex attractions. We recognize that is an issue. But the chief metaphor that the Bible uses for godly worship, for our relationship with God, for the gospel has sexual overtones. The covenant bond of marriage between a man and a woman. You know, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 says, this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and his church. That a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The beauty of the gospel is actually depicted for us best in a functional marriage relationship. In marriage, there is a leaving by the man to cleave to his wife in a covenant commitment, and it's consummated by the interpenetration of sexual union where the two again become one. So you have male and female distinguished, and then the two become one without losing their identity in the union of marriage. And so the creation account protects against the distortions of bestiality, homosexuality or lesbianism, the transvestite and androgynous confusion, because God distinguishes things. And Jesus fully endorses the Genesis account of marriage, introducing his teaching with a quotation from Genesis 1.27, and he concludes his teaching in this way in Matthew 19.4-6, what God has joined, let no man separate. What God has joined, let no man separate. There is a unity, but not an indivisibility. Our culture today is trying to separate what God has joined socially and ontologically, but is also trying to join what God has separated. It tries to separate what God has joined and and join what God has separated. And so marriage in Scripture is sacred and hallowed. It is a blessing. The problem in the church is not that we don't Um, we talk too much about sex, is that we don't talk enough about it and its real significance and meaning and beauty and glory as God has made it to mirror something about his own relationship within himself in the Trinity, the interpenetration of the persons and also of his desire for holy communion with us as human beings. We learn that God creates man in his image We learn that that image is differentiated male and female and that together they comprise that image of God. And we learn that we are to be fruitful and to multiply and to exercise dominion in the earth. But if we act against God's ordained differentiation, there is no blessing, there is no procreation, and consequently there's no true godly dominion and life becomes futile. Where authority and submission are denied to God and his covenant of marriage, what happens is that everyone serves themselves sexually. It's not liberation, it's exploitation. And actually, the beneficiaries of the sexual revolution have invariably been men. Liberated from all responsibility. 
for their actions, and even some of the feminists are waking up to this fact that maybe it wasn't such a good idea after all, because I have a church full of young women who can't find husbands. Because we have an infantilized group of juveniles for men, infantilized by the media, who do not want to commit to marriage, who do not understand what marriage is, who don't want to be engaged in that covenantal relationship too early by any stretch. So marriage is delayed and delayed and delayed, even in the Christian community. Marriage is a blessing. And when we understand the biblical picture of relational intimacy within diversity, we can begin to understand the sanctity and joy of sexuality as a reflection of the community of love in the Godhead. False religion produces a self-centered, self-gratifying, abusive perversion of God's intention for sex. Biblical faith leads to a proper fulfilling of the other in a God-centered understanding of human sexuality. I'll take questions for the next 15 to 20 minutes. Sure. Um, Well, homosexual, obviously homo means same. So intimacy there is pursued with someone the same as yourself. Hetero means different. So a homosexual practice is obviously a rejection of the other, of the female. Now, I understand that there will be people who um, feel that they've, as they've grown up, they've only felt attracted to the same sex. I understand that. We can, we can talk about how the whole idea of same-sex attraction arises. But um, homosexuality as a way of life and as a practice is a rejection of woman. It's a rejection of the female. And homosexualist culture um, uh, rejects true femininity. It doesn't like it. And this has been commented on by some social uh, scholars and historians, but it isn't something that the feminist likes to to focus on. Those groups, those who would call themselves lesbians and those who would consider themselves gay men, do not typically get on well at all. Because lesbianism, likewise, is a rejection of the male. Uh, And there tends to be um, a hostility between those. Other questions? I'm going to keep my question, my answer shorter because I've been asked to do that so that we can get more questions in. Yes, sir. Well, there would be uh, a few different responses to that, depending on obviously who you talk to. Um, there are those who have an apocalyptic view of what's taking place right now, and they, they don't see a possibility of recovery. Many Christians will look at it and they'll say, oh, this is the end times. Um, Paul, you see, in Romans 1, does view um, homosexuality in particular as uh, an emphatic expression of the rejection of God's order. So um, he does identify it 
as something which expresses man's final rejection, the burning out of man. It's the end point of man's rebellion against God because he's now rejecting God's order completely. And because of that, there are people that think that where we're going and where we're headed is unrecoverable. But I I don't believe that. Um, If you have a culture that kills its infants in the womb, kills the elderly, destroys the family, and denies procreation, it doesn't have much of a future, does it? That's a culture of death. So that culture will burn itself out very quickly. And I believe that the calling of the church is to be faithful to God in spite of hostility. And it'll be Christians who are able to rebuild culture within the ruins that will be left by this uh, social chaos. Because in a sense, we today have a kind of perfect storm of massive debt in Western culture. We have a declining demography, so we have less and less children. Because we've rejected the idea of family, we've, of course, rejected the idea of children. And so we don't have even a replacement rate in Canada and Europe. In Germany, for example, I think the the, um, fertility rate is one. So there is no economic model that could preserve a civilization through that kind of a drop in uh, a workforce. Who is going to fund a welfare state when there's no young people to pay the taxes? This is one of the reasons why, of course, euthanasia then becomes attractive because, well, maybe we just top, we just get rid of the elderly population quickly, and then it doesn't cost us too much money. So you have this perfect storm of, of death, really. It's a, it is a death culture, and, um, but that has no future. Only God's way has a future. That's why Proverbs 8.36 says, All those who sin against me wrong their own souls. All those who hate me love death. Whether people realize it or not, if you turn from the light of life, which is Christ, John chapter 1, you turn away from the light of life, then you have death and darkness, period. Other questions? We've had quite a few submitted to the web Okay. Yeah. Um, well, there is obviously a big difference between gender dysphoria, which is somebody who's incredibly confused about what gender they are, and um, hermaphrodite, or there's probably a more um, contemporary medical term for this, um, but where there is some confusion where a specialist might have to be called in when a baby is born to determine the sex of the child. There are instances where that happens, but chromosomes don't lie. So identifying the gender of the child is still always possible. There is always a dominant. So uh, we recognize that there are genetic disorders because there are all kinds of genetic disorders and some genetic disorders affect our genitals. That doesn't redefine the human person, male and female. That's a disease. It's a disorder. Um, the, the LGBTQ, 22S, et cetera, et cetera, and I don't always get it right, um, is, is, to do, is gender dysphoria, and that has nothing to do with the question of intersex and how a specialist is going to determine when a, when a child has, has got some genetic confusion there. Uh, Dr. Ted is a doctor. Um, he would be able to answer that question probably more effectively. I think that's roughly right, is it not? Thank you. Sir. Sure. 
Well, Plato's myth of creation, and I mentioned in this session some of the creation myths of the, many of the creation myths of the pagan world have a sort of bisexual creation moment. Um, And the basic unit of evolution, obviously, is the individual. It's not the individual, it's the, the, the population. And, of course, uh, if you posit a, an ultimate evolutionary perspective on reality, then you do have, at some point, an undifferentiated, sexless uh, creature, uh, which would lead to, if followed consistently, uh, a pagan conception of human sexuality. This is why the, even the theistic evolutionist is always in two minds about whether Adam and Eve are actually real people. Even though Adam is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, And he's referred to as the second Adam by the Apostle Paul. Scripture everywhere assumes the historical reality of an original pair, male and female. So if you deny that, which evolution's tendency is to do, because the basic unit is the population, they might say, well, at some point, some sort of proto-hominid had life breathed into it, and and he called them Adam and Eve, that kind of... I think, nonsense. Uh, You still have the problem of, okay, what's marriage? Uh, How do we, uh, if we don't have that original couple and God's original marriage, how do we understand human sexuality and human marital relationships? So there is, positing evolution or trying to insert evolutionary ideas into the biblical understanding of reality always is trying to some degree to syncretize two different philosophies. Uh, which I think are fundamentally irreconcilable. There is a reason why every pagan philosophy, ancient and modern, is evolutionary. Only the Bible is not. Now, it would be interest- It would be a very strange thing indeed if this cosmological key to the universe, evolution, God should fail to mention it in the Bible. This young lady here, the back. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, of course, there is a difference between the uh, philosophical problem and the pastoral problem, or the uh, evangelistic issue, if you will. So what I've been doing in this session is not talking about how I would discuss uh, the problem of sexual identity with, say, a young man who'd come to me to say he was struggling with same-sex attraction or was identifying as homosexual. What I'm talking about is how these ideas have infiltrated and have socially revolutionized the culture. Um, With these issues, it really does depend to a degree on who you are talking to and what their... Because obviously that that group, so-called, is mythical, okay? You simply have individuals who are practicing various forms of sexuality. 
and they are all coming from very different places. So the radical homosexual activist is going to come at you with a very different attitude and, pers- and um, perspective than the young lady or the young man who's struggling with their sense of identity or struggling with same-sex attraction. So with those who are trying to revolutionize the social order, we do need to address it in these worldview terms, cosmologically. Uh, we need to talk about who God is, what creation is, what, uh, and how, in, in a sense, <clears throat> one of the ways to show the absurdity of this is to show that there is no logical stopping point to this form of sexual revolution. Because right now, there are powerful lobby groups that are saying, and there are psychologists that are saying, that um, pedophilia is an orientation. So if they become a victim group in the culture, what do you do with that orientation? I mean, it's been criminal to this point. What about those who say incest? In fact, I just read an article about the youth wing of the Liberal Party in Sweden or Switzerland, one of the two, I can't remember, uh, so don't quote me, Sweden or Switzerland, are saying that they want the legalization of uh, of, uh, necrophilia and incest. Because any sort of sexual, um, uh, any law that would limit sexual expression is just oppressive. It's arbitrary, socially constructed. It's just a taboo that we need to break through. So there is, so when you're talking to the activist, really you have to show that, 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 that if this overturns all rationality and logic fundamentally. If I can stand before you and say, I'm a woman because I feel like it inside then there is no possibility of rationality in the universe. If, you, on the other hand, you're dealing with somebody who is struggling, we, just, we are calling us to preach the gospel. The gospel applies to somebody who's, who is misusing their bodies in any number of different ways, including sexually. And the call on every man, woman, and child is to repent and believe the gospel. And it's there that God, through the gospel and by the work of his spirit, remakes us, transforms us to his image. Now, that does not mean that I'm saying in some naive way that anybody who comes to Christ and commits themselves to Christ, is that, that sexual temptation is then over, that there is no possibility of them therefore being same-sex attracted after that. But if you speak to most young men, uh, the, when you get married, the temptation to sexual promiscuity doesn't disappear. Some people uh, need to learn to, so, so some people think monogamy is impossible. It's not. Celibacy, for all of us, is a possibility. And if somebody, their desires, their sexual desires don't orient in their lifetime towards God's pattern, then our calling is to simply govern those desires, like we have to govern all our desires. And if that's not the case, then why should anybody govern any sexual desire that they have for incest, bestial relationships, etc.? So we need to share the gospel. What we need to do is renew our confidence in the gospel because the homosexual or, or the lesbian or whatever knows deep in their own being that what they are doing is wrong, is destructive of their person, is a disordering of reality. They know it in their own being, and that uh, it's something that they cling to in spite of the fact that they know it's wrong. And guilt is a reality for every person who practices sexual immorality, whoever we are. 
And Paul is very clear that the church, the early church, was filled with people who had sexual brokenness. All manner of sexual brokenness, including homosexuality. And what did he say to the church? He said, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified. And there are, of course, uh, professional people, professional Christian people who can help people who want to be free from those desires. That is precisely why the state, the government, wants those groups of people and those professionals eliminated, struck off for reparative therapies and so forth. Because that is the ultimate offense. Because you're saying that if somebody can be restored, then there is a normative sexuality and you're denying that this is my identity. And that's why they've made it legal in Ontario. So isn't this interesting? If I want to become a woman or practice any kind of sexuality, the government will support and sponsor that. But if I don't want the feelings that I've got, they will make illegal my treatment. Do you see the contradiction there? If There's gender fluidity for everyone apparently until I don't want these feelings and then that therapy is illegal. So we have to have a renewed sense of confidence in the gospel that the gospel transforms people by the work of the Holy Spirit and that we can all exercise sexual discipline and sexual restraint in our lives and we have to throughout our lives. I'll take one last question. Yeah, you have a serious problem. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not meaning to make light of your question. Educators in the state system have a serious problem because this is the new orthodoxy. Kathleen Wynne, as you know, is a lesbian, the premier of Ontario. And it was her first promise when she came in that she was going to bring back this radical curriculum program. And she has. Despite all the protest and all the opposition, they don't care what the opposition of parents is. This is going to happen because this is about the kind of utopian, egalitarian future they believe in. So the Christian teacher in, in a state school has a extreme difficulty because your job is at risk if you teach a biblical understanding of human sexuality. Um, I think the, 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 strate- the strategy to my mind would be um, talking to the head and asking where the lines are for what you could share as your own testimony, perhaps of your, your own experience, um, and what you are or you're not allowed to say. I mean, a lot of teachers say that sc- schools are all not all cut from the same cloth. So you have, you know, in Toronto, we have s- entire schools now set up for the transgendered. Um, and those are, those are, they're called safe schools. A safe school. Um, but then there are other schools that are supposed to teach this curriculum and basically ignore it. So I really think it depends where you are and the relationships that you have. The issue will always come is if a child complains about what you're saying and a, a complaint is registered and then you're in difficulties. I believe that the ultimate answer to your question 
is uh, Christian schools. We need to recover Christian education. The schools were ours. The universities were ours. The provincial education in the, in the various provinces of Canada was a Christian idea. It was the church. It was Christian people that developed the vision for universal education. And we've abandoned that vision and that mission. He who pays the piper calls the tune. The state funds state education. Its money is going to control the curriculum. So, uh, of course, there's been attempts to reach into the private sphere as well, and in some parts of the world, even into the homeschool environment, because, again, there's no logical stopping point where the state does not want to reach. But for the time being, we need to recapture a vision of a robustly Christian education. There is no such thing as neutral education any more than there's neutral law, neutral government. And Christian teachers like you are discovering this very overtly now in the issue of sexuality, which, as we've seen, is not a peripheral issue. It's a gospel issue. It's a central issue of the Christian vision of humanity, life, marriage, social order, and everything else. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. So... Yeah. 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 You cannot have a child who thinks that they're confused about their gender go for any counseling that's right inside them. Yeah. Now you see the you you see the contradiction there. Why should that not be allowed? If I can change my gender identity like that at the drop of a hat and go into a women's shower room, locker room, and say, tough, I'm a woman, but yet you can't receive counsel if you don't want desires, certain desires, which have very often a very specific environmental cause that has to do with the the collapse in the family that we're seeing and attachment issues with mother and father. So this is a complex issue. We can talk about it more in our our Q&A time um, this afternoon. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.